0: This is your host, Andy Anderson. In this episode, what we didn't predict can still hurt us. We talk with Paul Vixie, Internet Hall of Famer and CEO of Farsight Security. To be honest, this has got to be one of my favorite interviews and the chance to hear Paul's perspective, having been leading some of the efforts that shaped how the modern internet works today. We talked about how such complex and multi partied ecosystems are always going to create problems and issues that we couldn't foresee and how, as a global community, we're still struggling to solve them. Listen in to see how Paul sees these issues and problems. You have a pretty interesting story in terms of from sort of an education background, from sort of dropping out of high school to getting your PhD. For those of our listeners who haven't heard that story, I'd love to hear it again.
1: Well, so high school for me started in, I don't know, 78 or so, and computers at that time were bigger, more expensive, slower, and less plentiful than they are now. So, in order to get access to one, you had to go to where they were and work out some kind of a deal, usually being a lab tutor or something like that with whoever owned that computer. And I did that instead of homework and was a really horrible student. I guess I was uh, not well enough supervised at home either. But anyway, in 1980, my counselor told me that I was going to be a junior again for the, the upcoming school year. And I decided that the trend was uh, not to my liking. So the way I was earning a living at the time was not computers. I was uh, earning a living pumping gas. And I had always envisioned myself uh, graduating to someday being a tow truck driver. But I thought, all right, before I go see uh, check that out, I've got to see if this computer thing is able to pay. And it turns out being a computer guy I paid a lot better than driving a tow truck. So I did that. <laughs> now, years later... I did start a PhD program at Keio University in Japan, and it took seven or eight years uh, for me to get that done. Uh, I don't hold the record for the, being the slowest student ever. There's one guy who took longer, but at the same time, I was the, we were having new babies. I was starting companies. I had a lot of other stuff going on. So yeah. Yeah, presumably I could have done it in a, a reasonable amount of time if that's all I was doing. Yeah. And then the year after that, I was inducted into the Internet Hall of Fame uh, largely because of all the stuff I did that made my PhD take so long.
0: <laughs> well, when you finally got it, it seems like
1: it went pretty well. <laughs> it's a funny path and not one that I could repeat or that I'd recommend, but uh, it's mine. Yeah,
0: It sounds like you know, you've sort of navigated that, sort of practitioner to academic sort of leading research kind of uh, world in a really interesting way. I I mean, what, what, and having sat in a number of your, your talks, it seems like you're always having conversations sort of at a, at a global level, right? Sort of trying to push a push the community to do things. How did that happen? How did you get sort of pulled to that sort of part of the space?
1: Wow. So all my life, I have been a constant threat every morning to wake up angry about something. And if you do that, and you do it pretty much at scale, which is to say every day, eventually you start to want to know not so much why am I angry about this, but where did this come from? What are, does it have any ancestors in common to the thing that was pissing me off yesterday? And what that'll lead you to, if you follow it, and I didn't have a choice, is to realize that the thing we live on is round. And no solution that is only going to help one part of that round thing is going to last long enough or be sustainable or or make any real difference in human history. So as a result, I am one of the 10% of Americans who has a passport. I have traveled. I've seen the world. I've seen how other people live. Uh, I've seen that not everything that we do is the best way it can be done. And I have tried to Applies some hierarchy to the, not the hierarchy of needs, but the hierarchy of things to be pissed off about. And there's just no way to do that uh, without a global view. So
0: what you're saying is you're like pissed off at a global scale? Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> it's interesting sort of, I think the sort of, you know, the internet came out of this sort of community of people who knew each other and, and yeah. it seems like it was before I was born. So you'll tell me probably, <laughs> but you know, there was sort of a collaborative spirit. It was, it was a small community. And then this thing grew to a scale that I, I think maybe few of the people who originally came up with it ever could imagine. But all the sort of unintended consequences, sort of unanticipated issues that have arisen across that sort of spectrum and that sort of initial everyone is here in this together community spirit maybe some of the later people don't quite have that same
1: communal ethos. I agree that a lot of the latecomers right now are uh, sort of concerned about trying to cash in on something before the whatever it is collapses. So that's very extractive thinking, and that was not prevalent in the early days. Even the people who did do well financially, you know, started companies that later went public or sold for a lot of money, were, the thing they were passionate about was changing the way communication worked and uh, making a lot of money was just a really beneficial side effect as opposed to being the point in and of itself. For those of you born later, it's maybe hard for you to understand that within the generation of people that was working on this kind of thing in the 80s, some of us were quite junior. So, I, for example, when I came to work at the Digital Equipment Corporation Western Research Lab in 1988, I was then 25, and I had always been a very big fish in whatever small pond I was in, and so I thought very highly of myself. And I went to work in this lab that had 30, scientists you know phd people and i was uh, very much the junior man on that totem pole as low as you could go and i learned a great deal about uh, what a real pond looks like instead <laughs> of the small ponds i had been swimming in up until then and even a few years ago i was on a panel at a hackers conference with Marshall Kirk McCusick and Eric Allman, who are two people from the BSD community. And the organizers were probably born about when you were, and so they think of all of us as BSD people. And what I had to point out to the audience is, you know, when I came into this, SendMail was already a thing. It was already a global presence in the world. And uh, I learned a lot about what I know about programming in C by reading Eric's source code and asking him questions, which he was kind enough to answer. And uh, Kirk had written the fast file system. And that was also universal at the time. It was in every Sun computer that was made uh, in, in the first decade. And all the BSD systems and Again, I learned what I know about file systems by studying his work that was five to 10 years before my time. And so, I, yes, at this point, a lot of people are going to lump us together. But I always remember coming into this late mm-hmm. and really feeling like I had missed the boat and really feeling like uh, I had to do a lot of work to prove to these people that I was useful. Hmm. And I think there was a lot of that that went on then that is not necessarily going on now, simply because there are millions of people doing it instead of dozens.
0: Yeah, the sort of scale of the community just makes it really hard for it to feel maybe like a community sometimes. Yeah, right? I was bouncing around the internet and came across a LinkedIn article that you'd written, kind of about that mentorship process. And you had your six questions, right? For those people who haven't who hadn't seen that, talk to me about that. That kind of piece and and how you think about kind of the mentor-mentee relationship and whatnot, because it, it, it was, at least for me, really interesting.
1: So that article was a little bit scary for me because it was written for management people, not technical people. Yeah. And uh, I have cherished the uh, my memory of being a strong technical person. i have slipped. I'm at the point where I don't have a lot to say to new technologists other than to tell them, well, don't do this, because that worked poorly for me. (laughs) And so the idea that I would have something innovative to say in a non-technical way felt like a bit of a phase change, like maybe I have really become, I've reached outer limits of middle age in my field. But nevertheless, that article, like so many others, started with me waking up angry about something, which is a lot of times you have people whose interests are theoretically alignable, who can't get it done, and they end up spending a whole bunch of time circling and misdirecting and just kind of not making progress, either for themselves or whatever organization they're in. So I crafted those six questions, which really, if you read the article, it says that uh, it's three questions, and then the same three put to mirror image. And the idea is to really invite somebody to speak plainly and to speak the truth and to create a safe environment for them to say something that maybe has been on their mind but they just they didn't have an opening they did not know how to make an opening so you got to make that opening and it's not too different from what a lot of married couples learn to do, which is, you know, hey, honey, how have I been pissing you off? What is it that you just have given up talking to me about because I was never able to listen? So, if we all try that, we'll probably hear something. And that's interesting because it means not so much that you have to dig for it, but that there are some things you have to dig for. Uh, Even your life partner is not always going to feel that it's worth telling you one more time to put the toilet seat down or whatever it's going to be. And uh, if they have a list of things like that that they hate it may be that on that list there is absolutely nothing that you give a rat's ass about and you are willing to give on every one of those points and you could create a lot of marital harmony if you would just talk about it as opposed to sort of running through our lives with our hair on fire as we do so that's what those questions were designed to do is to open a lane of communication to people who really should be talking and should be listening but for whatever reason aren't
0: yeah that seems like a at least a a theme that I've heard in a number of your your talks is sort of how do we get a, a community to align themselves around something that's maybe not not directly in their own self interest? Sort of a, a tragedy of the commons problem at cosmic at global yes. scale. Yes. Yeah. I mean, we're uh, excuse this analogy, but every time I, I hear you, I can't sort of help but think of. Uh, Don Quixote, right? <laughs> you seem like you, you you keep tilting at windmills, right? <laughs>
1: I do, I do, and I sometimes think of that as character flaw. But sometimes the windmill moves a bit. Yeah. So
0: it's always you know this industry so much talk about the problems and what's broken, right? But maybe not enough attention on what what has worked and what is working. Where have you seen maybe a, a windmill lean or shift just a little bit?
1: Well, I'm going to answer a slightly different question, which is what works and what doesn't. Because I've started a couple of non-profit companies, a couple of for-profit companies. Some of them have done okay. Some of them have been terrible failures. Generally speaking, the time that I launched the anti-spam industry with a company called MAPS, a Mail Abuse Prevention System, and some technology called the RBL, which is used pretty much by everybody now. You know, no one who listens to this broadcast will ever receive mail that was not in some way uh, subject to RBL lookups. And if I had been a little bit more foresighted about it, I, I could maybe have patented that and I'd be the road reflector family, but I didn't, right? I was trying to solve a problem, not, not make money. Yeah. But the problem I was trying to solve was trying to uh, make spam harder to send, more expensive, less successful. And in that sense, I was building a wall. Uh, you may have noticed that you're still getting spam. And uh, it's my belief that without the RBL and without the industry that I inspired, Spam House and everybody else now does what we used to do. Without that, you'd be getting more spam. It's possible that if you and everybody else was getting more spam, you'd do something about it. You'd get angry about it. And if we had angry people, torch bearing mobs as it were, then maybe the problem could be finally solved. And so it may be that by building the walls I built when I built them, all I did was to contain the problem and limit the slope of its growth to the point where it could have a graceful insertion into human culture as opposed to creating so much outrage that uh, it would have died a a fiery death after a short life so i may have had the opposite impact on history (laughs) that i that i planned to now in other cases for example, with starting the Internet Systems Consortium, which is the nonprofit that uh, Bind comes from, or starting the Palo Alto Internet Exchange, which was the first neutral commercial Internet exchange. It was the first place that ISPs could come in this country and connect to each other in a neutral house where nobody was getting circuit revenues from anybody. And it was a really groundbreaking thing. Nobody realized how important that would be. Uh, we hired the people who later left in disgust and founded Equinix, which has become the big player in that. But uh, in the case of of those two companies, I was not building walls. I was building roads. I wasn't making certain things harder. I was making, instead, certain things easier. And the impact of those has been far greater. Mm -hmm. And so my lesson out of all of that is you should build roads, not walls. Mm -hmm. That's such an interesting way of approaching a problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, Well, it's interesting, but it's also terrifying because I actually had to do all of that, right? It feels now that I could spend a few hours with a pad of paper or a whiteboard and work that out theoretically, and maybe there are people who can, but no, I actually have to go through the whole thing before I will learn the lesson.
0: Even at this scale of a a community that's you know millions billions right billions using it millions sort of working in it is it still in many cases you know sort of handfuls of people who are really kind of moving the needle or how, when when change happens who's doing it right more than the sort of the practical kind of what's the community and what what what's that look like when it happens
1: so i think the easiest case study for success in making a difference would be linus torvalds he had a vision of a Unix-like operating system that would be be a fairly open license that you wouldn't have to pay AT&T for, and that the community could take the biggest single hand in shaping its future. And I'm certain that a lot of people left when they heard what he wanted to do. But I think you've got at least two versions of Linux running on your body right now. And everybody else, everybody listening to this, uh, likewise. That's how prominent it's become. That's, that's what a big deal it is. And again, he was not building walls. He was building roads. He wanted to make certain things possible. And he is, uh, he's won that game. And there are other examples where it took a lot of money maybe to get something done. And certainly Linux has a lot of money invested in it, but it's being invested by companies who accepted the code base, they accepted the culture, they accepted the license, they hired people from the Linux community to be their executives. B. Dale Garvey was the CTO for Linux at Hewlett Packard for a while, and he was you know, Mr. Debian. And there are other cases where somebody has said, I want to have a success like that, but I don't want to do it in a crowdsourced sort of community integrated way. Uh, what I want to do is uh, just write a lot of checks and end up owning stuff, and maybe that is better than nothing. But I look at uh, a couple of the, the highly commercial versions of Linux, and they've got nothing compared to the mar- market share that Red Hat has by having both a commercial and non-commercial version. And you know, I, I look at Google as an interesting example, and uh, of course, AltaVista was really the first search engine of that kind, and that was part of digital. But uh, Digital Equipment Corporation was completely insane when it came to networking and they didn't understand what they had. So they, they kind of wrecked Alta Vista. But anyway, uh, Google could not have come about if Linux hadn't come first because yeah. uh, they had to be able to hack on the bare metal and figure out how they were going to do things differently enough that no commercial provider would ever have given them enough access or whatever Uh, But they didn't have to start by building their own operating system. They could sort of join a a community already in progress. And in fact, they've put huge contributions into that community. They've paid back much more than they benefited. And I think that's a better approach is to uh, figure out a way. And this goes back to what I was saying earlier about alignment of interests. Uh, A lot of the people that you compete with are potential fellow travelers, if you're creative.
0: Yeah. And standing on the shoulders of giants, right? You know. And hopefully helping helping someone else up with you, right? From a historical perspective, I think it's just to change directions, um, interesting sort of the at least some of the explosive growth of the internet took place kind of in that the early nineties in the two thousands, right? When you sort of had a, a quieting of the Cold War, you know, sort of the interests from a geopolitical standpoint we're sort of maybe in a different place than they are right now and and i you know i've heard some people have begun to sort of think about that cyber warfare is becoming essentially another stage of the cold war with china and russia sort of rising as powers and sort of trying to sort of battle with the us for sort of global supremacy what when you think about that. Do you get worried about when you think of like a community that's working together and how does that and you start to have competing factions at that that level. What's your sort of I realize that's very much out of left field, but
1: so I used to think I could change human nature and I've given up on that. <laughs> and what that means is that any sort of macro historical pattern will reissue. You're gonna see old ideas applied to new technology, inevitably. So so if you take a look at not just the United States recent election, but uh, recent elections in Germany and Ukraine and whatnot, it's no longer really possible to trust democracy because crowds of people can be uh, misinformed through social media and made to either abandon or adopt positions that are not the ones that they would come to if they were allowed to think peacefully on their own. So in that way, the internet has turned pretty much the whole of the human population into a potentially torch-bearing mob. And they don't think clearly. And We did that. We, uh, the people who built whatever small piece of the internet each of us built, made that possible. And we didn't have a plan for how we were gonna keep this bad side effect from occurring. Now, you mentioned the 90s. And I think there's a point that often gets missed, I think, because the Clinton family and the Clinton Foundation often takes credit for uh, how great the economy was during their eight years in office. Mm -hmm. And what I want to point out is that in 1993, the National Science Foundation decided to uh, release the Internet. They were no longer going to fund it. They were going to do, uh, were, it was called the commercialization and privatization effort. Yeah. And it was in full swing by 94 and it was over by 96. Yeah. And I think that is why the 90s was a period of boom growth. Yeah. Because we we're getting a lot more efficiencies. We we're getting a lot more potential relationships. Um, we we're virtualizing a lot of things. And that was the good part. And then, you know, the bad part is when i was a kid growing up in san francisco you'd read in the newspapers every month or so some senior citizen had got mugged on social security day you know cause they'd get their check they walk to the bank and people wait outside the bank hey you're a senior citizen on social security day i'll bet snatching that purse is going to be profitable for me so those people were at those risks And now those people are not at that risk because it is much easier to steal that same money through a malware infection and a keylogger or a botnet one nickel at a time or whatever you're going to do. And you can do it from the privacy of your parents' basement or wherever it is that you live that you want to launch those attacks. And you can do it from anywhere in the world. You don't have to be in the same country. You're not on the scene. You're not at risk of tripping or being chased by a good Samaritan. Yeah. Recognized there, there's no risk and the attack surface is effectively infinite. Yeah. And we did that. We, the people who did our small part to make the internet possible, did all of that without a plan for what the heck we were going to do now.
0: The law of, it seems like you're a student of, of unintended yeah. consequences. Yes, I am. How about now? What are you sort of most... What windmills are you tilting at and what are you most sort of concerned about?
1: So the natural forces of the human economy and history and human nature are going to mean that this Internet of Things deal is going to make all of us even less safe. We will have less privacy. We will have less certainty that the transactions that we are conducting are actual with the counterparty we thought they were. And we're going to put all of this type of uh, electronics into cars and start to have a lot of self-driving cars without having really learned the lesson that all software has bugs or at least all software ever written has had bugs. We don't know if maybe someday there will be some that doesn't. But if, you know, the trend line indicates that all software will always have bugs and that we just don't know what those bugs are at the moment we ship it, and that means we're going to kill people with bugs and we when i've talked to people in the self-driving car industry they they say well right now we're killing people without software it's humans driving the cars and humans are incompetent and so what i asked the question so your value proposition here is that you're going to kill fewer people in new ways and they said well yeah because they see the fewer and i see the new ways it's like i am a pedestrian and all the cars around me are going to have your bugs in them. I am a test subject in your laboratory, and my consent was not sought. Yeah. And and yet that's how human history progresses. So that's what I'm worried about. Is this unintended consequences thing is bad. By itself, it's worse when you square it, and it's even worse when you cube it. And we're going to cube it.
0: So it sounds like you need to recruit more. You know, you've been mentoring on the small scale and, and probably on the on the large scale. If you, you know, for those people who are listening to this, reading this, where would you recommend that they go? How would you sort of direct them to sort of follow a path somewhat like yours and work for the good, at least in some
1: measure? Well. There isn't so much a path, but there is an attitude. Now, 100 years ago, most American families knew where their food was coming from. Even if they weren't growing it themselves, they understood the process that they were outsourcing. And so they knew what was in their food. And now that's gone away. We have outsourced all of that. Mm-hmm. Our food is brought to us and we don't really have any more than a fuzzy concept that we got from a movie some, uh, sometime or a story we heard about how that animal was raised and slaughtered or, or what had to get sprayed on that crop or how much diesel fuel went into bringing it to our table. And that is where we go wrong. I'm not saying that we should all continue to grow our own food, but we should continue to investigate where it comes from so that we can be making informed choices about what we do. The libertarians, crazy though they are, have a couple of useful concepts, one of which is culture dollar votes. When you buy something, you are feeding a closed control loop. Uh, where you're you're encouraging that whatever activity your your seller had to go through gets a little push from you. They get to do it more and more things like that and fewer things not like that will exist in your future because you spent your money in a certain way. And if I could get people to investigate what they do and what they are benefiting and make a decision about uh, what future they would like to aim for, you know, with their tiny little dollar votes, that would be huge. But at the moment, you know, the present times in, in human history are dominated by bullshit. Uh, people hear what they want to hear and they believe what they want to hear. And other people are very good at figuring out what that's going to be and delivering those messages. And a lot of us, sadly, just lap it up. And do not think about the way that we are participating in really our own destruction or our own, our own imprisonment. Yeah,
0: the uh, the silent majority, right? right? Sadly, for good or for evil, right?
1: People who cannot be bothered to understand what's going on. Yeah, but still vote. <laughs> yeah.
0: Oh, this is great! Really fun. Thank you. Appreciate Thanks. it. Before we end. Here's your soapbox. Anything you want to talk about, mention, get people involved in, you know the floor is yours. Feel free to to pitch whatever you've got or want to.
1: Okay. So it's a two-parter. You cannot make a digital system like a computer or a network safer by making it more complicated. <laughs> and what that means is that let's say you have a network of some kind and you add some new thing, maybe it's a firewall or some other security related technology, but it's got software in it and all software has bugs. And and so there's some risks and you need to have some kind of an inventory about what you have and what versions you're running so that if something, if a bug is found, you know that you need an update. And that means that the point at which you write a check or flip out your credit card and get a new thing is not the end of your investment. It's the beginning of your investment. And if you don't, then the bad guys who understand your technology a lot better than you do because that's how their incentives are aligned, are going to take you for a ride. So I think security and complexity don't go hand in hand. Uh, If you want both, you have to work really hard. And so that I think is a good lead in to understanding why I'm doing the company I'm doing, Farsight Security. A lot of folks in the security buy side, just they can't be bothered. They don't have time. They have budget. They want to write a check and they want to be safe. And I don't think that's actually possible. I don't think you could do that. So I don't tell people that that's what we do. What I tell them instead is a bit of a tough love story. You have to understand what the threats are you have to understand what your you know threat surface looks like and then when something happens you have to have enough clues inside your corporate dna to be able to do an investigation and so i sell tools and data feeds that facilitate that kind of understanding that kind of investigation and i am often criticized by a current customer or sometimes by a prospect who says effectively paul you're trying to sell me a shovel and I want to buy a hole. And my point is that you probably can't solve your problem by buying holes. Yeah. And I'm not good at lying to you and telling you that you can. Yeah.
0: You don't know where to put it. <laughs> where do you want me to dig it, right? <laughs> if I have to ask you that every day.
1: <laughs> sort of, yeah. I'm going to harp on this for as long as I can. And we're finding customers and we aren't growing. So at the moment, I haven't been proved wrong. I think that investing in your understanding and in your ability to make enlightened follow-up actions after an attack or even before an attack is the best thing you can do. The people who invest that way might spend more up front, but they certainly save more on the backside.
0: Yeah. This is awesome. Anything else? Where can people find you? They want to follow up. We can throw links and stuff in the...
1: Well, I am, of course, Paul Vixie on uh, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Google, and Facebook. The company is farsightsecurity.com. And we eventually got real tech writers and real marketing people. So we have a real website now. It's not the old one that I wrote.
0: (laughs) Oh, it's a good thing.
1: And, you know, I am always excited to hear from people, to answer questions, to get involved in arguments about the best way forward. Yeah, pretty much if somebody wants to choose the road less traveled, they should be reaching out to us. Oh, this is great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Great to sit down, literally with a legend.